Welcome to the Brave New Mind podcast. I'm Susie McLean, a health communication specialist. And I'm Will Evans, a palliative care doctor researching the therapeutic potential of psychedelics as medicine. Each week, we'll bring you a new perspective on the therapeutic psychedelic space, researchers who are leading the way with local trials, therapists and others gearing up to work in this space, business people getting in on the ground floor, and big names in the field from all over the world. We are about exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, so our focus will be on research, evidence, and the safe and legal use of these medicines. This is not a podcast about recreational use or self-medication. Now that we're clear on that, get your set and setting sorted, settle in, and enjoy the show. Dr. Lisa Reynolds is Director of the Postgraduate Diploma in Health Psychology at the University of Auckland, where she trains health psychology students to work clinically as psychologists in physical health settings. She also works with cancer patients and their whanau, providing psychological support and therapy, and is actively involved in research into using psychedelics as medicines. Lisa is a co-investigator on a collaborative study between the University of Otago and the University of Auckland, looking at whether MDMA might be helpful for anxiety and depression in advanced cancer patients. We talked with Lisa about the role of psychedelic medicine in supporting a whole-person approach to healthcare, the need for these substances to ease the suffering of advanced cancer patients, and the effect that working with psychedelics has on a work environment. A different kind of person seems to be attracted to working in this area, you know, where collaboration, you know, real, true, genuine collaboration, kindness, you know, thoughtfulness, compassion, those things seem to be very present in in the conversations and in the and in the work that that I've been talking to to people about doing, and yeah, so it's very refreshing. Do you think people bring it or do they grow it? I don't know. I mean. I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably there's a bit of both. There's sort of probably some dispositional things, you know, like a certain, certain kinds of people are more interested in, in this area and, and, and have that naturally. But I think it, it's definitely facilitated and fostered when you're working alongside other people and, you know, it, it grows. A couple of things, because, you know, it's, it's essentially multidisciplinary, isn't it? There's no yeah. way you can do this work without yeah. crossing all of those barriers. Yeah. But also, Will, um, you, you know, we talk a lot, or you talk a lot, about you really can't separate psychedelics and some of these more esoteric, ineffable concepts out, things like spirituality, mm. some of those ideas that you normally wouldn't even sort of bring into that kind of space, right? Yeah. Yeah, there isn't a, a medicine in the Western medical paradigm that you would associate with spirituality or mystical experience. So it's just a complete anomaly in it's, in the pharmacopoeia. Yeah. yeah, it's really unknown territory, isn't it? And it's kind of, it feels quite exciting to me that medicine is actually starting to think a bit more broadly than, you know, just physical well-being. Certainly we've seen, I'm, I'm a health psychologist, so I've seen a real growth in health psychology and an acceptance and an, an appreciation of the importance of understanding psychological well-being. But even there, you know, like it's what we haven't seen is that kind of like that next step over, which is spiritual well-being as well, and you know, existential distress, and and the different, I guess, the whole aspects of what makes up a person. Because even the well-being focus, it's relatively recent, isn't it? I mean, yeah. up until recently, it's all been about pathology and fixing things, making yep. people functional, patching them up again to go back to the lives that that are yeah. really probably causing all the distress and yeah. all the drama. Yeah. But you're talking about something else altogether, aren't you? It's, I guess thinking about 
your place in the world and what's important to you and where you get your energy and your resource, thinking more about what life's about and you know some of those bigger questions. So you've been working in this field for a couple of years now. What, what attracted you to it in the first place? You know, I think like many... Many clinicians or people who work in that area, in, in the area of cancer, have felt frustrated that the the sort of the current resources that we have, whether they are sort of pharmaceutical or farm or, or psychological, um, that you know they they don't work for everyone. You know they don't always cut it. I'm a psychologist, so I'm deeply you know that psychological intervention is really important to me, and I see it can be really really helpful. Um, but I think a couple of years ago, like many people, I read Michael Pollan's book, you know, How to Change Your Mind. And it was a real turning point for me because there's a whole chapter in that book about research that's happened with advanced cancer patients. What they talked about in the, and the results that they found were really compelling. You know, so it's clinically meaningful uh, reductions in depression and anxiety and reductions in fear of death and feeling less isolated after a single high dose psychedelic experience and that those benefits were maintained six months later in 60-80% of people. I saw a, a recent follow-up uh, that was, was it was released back in January where they followed up, I think it was a small number, 14 or 15 people, 60-80% of people had maintained those benefits and those are just, they're not the kinds of results of. that yeah. you see in, in, in sort of traditional approaches. That, um, that was four years down the line, was it? From the, yeah, from yeah, the four, original four and a half years down down the line. So the original study was, uh, this is the Ross work that came out of New York University. Was there um, therapy involved or just medicine? Uh, well, there is there is some psychotherapy alongside the medicine. So this was using psilocybin, which you know is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, um, and so a single high dose, and then um, some psychotherapy beforehand so you know preparing people for the for the experience and then integration therapy afterwards so it was a you know it's a combined approach you know she talk about a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy yeah and so so that's you know like i i saw those those studies and uh, then started doing a little bit more digging and and realized that there'd been studies with cancer patients you know from you know like back in the 60s as well that was just really interesting, really compelling to me. So I put feelers out and reached out. I reached out to people like Will and to, um, and to Suresh Mithakumaraswamy and things really just fell into place from there. So it's kind of opened up this whole new area of really interesting research for me that I feel really excited about. What do you think it's going to be like to be able to offer patients these tools that you've never had before that have these extraordinary success rates? but then pretty much have them taken away from you in a non-research setting. That's one of the things that we all grapple with that I think could be, you know, is one of the real downsides and, and it could be really heartbreaking either as someone who's been through the research and has had that experience and, and has found something um, that is helpful or also people who just are hearing about the research, maybe, you know, have advanced cancer or, you know, or feeling really desperate and it's just it's not available, and so I think that that's 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 really hard. There's kind of no kind of magic answer to that, apart from the kind of the longer story, which is actually that's why we need the research. We need to do these studies. We need to get the the evidence there, so we can take that evidence to the various decision makers, to MedSafe and the like, and um, change the way that we we do things. But we need the research and we need the evidence. And does it? It's no. just an ongoing process. So. In some ways, you could 
you could rationalize the situation as this is the most responsible way to roll it out in society is in within the confines of a research study. We just need to upscale our research uh, efforts across the board so that mm. people who need these these uh, experiences, these transformative therapeutic experiences can access them in research studies that are available around and it's not a restricted kind of uh, scarce phenomenon but mm. it, there always will be a scarcity of sorts with this but i think there are creative ways as well and like looking at what's happening in the states there's a guy um in colorado runs a clinic called innate path mm. they are using cannabis in place of mdma mm-hmm. for ptsd and anecdotally finding it's doing the job that, that the MDMA would do. We've got ketamine in this country now that, that is approved. So yeah. if we had therapists who were really willing, able and skilled, mm. we would be able to introduce some of those substances into those sorts of settings. Yeah. But but I guess we're a long way off, aren't we? Because we need the clinicians to feel comfortable and competent in what they're doing. I think the modern paradigm is tilting more and more towards patient-centred and patient-driven uh services so uh, it maybe it's going to come from the the wider population saying this is this is clearly what we need as a population and and so pushing but do you wonder do you worry about the underground though in that yeah i mean it, there's going to be risk isn't there there's going to be uh there's always going even if not if when these these substances become rationalized and legalized and used in medical settings, there will be an underground. There, there's, there's always going to be a, a even within the the supposed safe safe boundaries of of medical institutions. <laughs> I don't think that um, medicine and medical institution holds the the truth on and all of the 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 currency on good practice and safe practice. So that raises another thing too. You said you, um, Lisa, looked to see that the research in the 50s and 60s and 70s had happened Mm -hmm. and in palliative care. And that kind of sparked your interest along with Michael Pollan's book. That did all get shut down again. Yes, yeah, it did. It did. And so, and I, and I think that speaks to why we need to be really careful and cautious. Um, you know, that we need to build the evidence and we need to be really, we need to be really careful. I think for people who are interested in, in exploring these kinds of, um, substances in a sort of a self-medication, self-experimentation way, my message is, is to be cautious around that, you know, that we, we really need to build up our understanding. And yeah. um, and build up our evidence. Yeah, I I have to put in my my uh, kind of compensatory statement as well. I mean, <laughs> obviously, there's going to be an underground and there's going to be risk, uh, but still, and there's there are going to be very good underground practitioners, possibly even better than mainstream medical practitioners. But mm. at this point in time, with the evidence base and the the policy that we have the recommendation has to be that you go through either a research study to mm. to have these substances in, and these experiences that the substances confer in a safe and um, viable mm. way. There's uh, another component to that too, though, Will, and it's the one that you're addressing at the moment. You've got the summit at the end of the month, 200 clinicians coming together to learn in this space. Mm. You're working actively, you guys, with therapists to get them up to speed and things. 
I certainly, as a patient at the moment, certainly clinical studies, of course, are very you know well organised and monitored and supervised and all of those things. But I would not be comfortable necessarily going to any old underground therapist in this country at the moment because we've got no culture around this. We've got people have not had the training and they've been overseas and done it. We're very green in this country at this point, and it's all very new, isn't it? Yeah, uh, there is the the air of accountability within in medical frameworks and within professional bodies, isn't there? And still within those, uh, a lot happens under the radar and, and the accountability isn't as great as we would hope it to be. But in the underground setting, even less so. Uh, and so I'm just even thinking about safety though I mean, I'm even mm. thinking about patients mm. going to someone who's like oh you know I'm really keen to try to do psychedelic therapy and they're mm. really keen and the whole thing really exploding yeah yeah I mean I think that's certainly a risk mm. um, and I think you know the I mean the other the bit of it is that um, if you're part of a research trial you're going to be you're going to know exactly what you're taking it's going to be Pure, yeah. <laughs> Medical grade, you know, um, the substance that you, you know, that you think you're taking is what you're taking, and you so. get that flowing in, right? You get the MDMA <laughs> flowing into the country, which I find ex- just amazing. So maps do this. Obviously, there's some process around this to, to get it into the country. It just follows the the standard pharmaceutical oh, uh, pathway. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. this funny courier service i think they like called world courier world courier i think yeah. and they do all the illicit pharmaceutical <laughs> substance the couriering. yeah couriering. It, it sounds a bit clandestine actually yeah. world courier they have to be as armored as those money trucks wouldn't they as- i presume so <laughs> yeah there's security that's for sure yeah. so let's have a, yeah. a chat about the research for a minute yeah okay give us an overview of the kind of studies you're involved in so I'm involved in a few different studies. There is the MDMA study that we just mentioned, which I think, you know, is, uh, it hasn't started yet, but, you know, I th- we think we're kind of a long way down the track or being reasonably close to starting. There, uh, I'm a co-investigator on Suresh's work with LSD microdosing, which I think is imminently going to start as well. Uh, there's uh, a ketamine study that I'm also co-investigating with, but none of these studies have actually started. The work that I have been involved with and that is almost complete is some qualitative work. You know, when I became interested in this area, I thought a really good place to start was to talk to cancer healthcare providers and also cancer patients and their whanau to get a sense of what they thought about this idea of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Um, because if patients don't think that it's, that it's something that they want to do, then, you know, it's kind of, do we still do it? And cancer healthcare providers, they're, they're the gatekeepers. So, yeah, we've done, a, we've done a qualitative piece of work with cancer healthcare providers. That's finished now. We're, we're writing that up, um, hoping to get that published. I've sort of talked about it in a few forums. Uh, the cancer patients' work, uh, we're almost finished that. So I've been supervising a master's student called April Wick, and so she's doing that for her master's, and so she's been interviewing people and getting some, you know, really good, um, having had some really interesting interviews with, with cancer patients. And what's coming out of that? What, what are the general trends in that? Well, I probably can't speak around the cancer patients' work so much because that's we're still on the kind of like, okay, let's working working things out. But the cancer healthcare providers' research, it was really interesting work. We, you know, we interviewed oncologists and palliative care doctors and psychologists and social workers. Not a, not a lot of people, so it was like 12 people in all, but you know, that's kind of the nature of qualitative work. You kind of go for depth rather than breadth. And what we found is 
not surprisingly, people who work in this area really care about their patients. You know, they come from a place of kindness and compassion and want to help. There is frustration, frustration. You know, there's a real um, recognition that there is a need and that sometimes that need is well met, but there are certainly uh, cancer patients who at end of life, uh, particularly where the resources that we have at the moment, the pharmaceutical possibilities and the psychological possibilities, they just don't quite cut it. In those interviews that we had, pretty much across the board, people were kind of really open to the idea of a new approach. Certainly some reservations and around safety and, you know, and wanting reassurance around that. And that's entirely, you know, appropriate in what you do, you would expect. But I think, you know, almost everyone that we talked to said, yeah, we're open to this idea. We, we're evidence-based practitioners. We want the evidence. We accept that if you want evidence, you know, you've got to be a part of research. And so there was a pretty loud message that came out of that qualitative work that the idea of openness to, to doing a trial in this area. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, because we interviewed, um, Dr. Graham Galbrenson, who runs cannabiscare.co.nz. A lot of that conversation was about the lack of uptake mm-hmm. amongst GPs of cannabis products. Yeah. Did you find a, a similar kind of reticence? I mean, obviously they're they're comfortable in a clinical setting, uh, sorry, in a clinical research setting. Yeah. Did you ask about sort of taking it out of the lab and how people felt? We didn't ask about that. That was kind of beyond the kind of the scope of what our mm. our research question was. Our research question was more around what do you think about this idea? And um, we mentioned a couple of the trials that had already happened. We were we were really asking around. You know, would you be Willing to refer cancer patients? Is this something that you know you'd be, you'd you know how, you know, what would you what would you think about this and and what are your concerns? Yeah, and I think the the work when it does become legal and when we're actually doing it outside of research settings, uh, it will be done by specialists. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's really about the referral process, and yeah. it'd be nice to to imagine that in maybe ten years time that your average oncologist would consider psychedelic therapy and maybe even have the tools to to administer uh, or prescribe a psychedelic in conjunction with a therapeutic service. How do you see that? I mean, that's one of the questions I I would love to to discuss and and to ask is what's your five year vision or ten year vision of what what the landscape of psychedelic therapy would look like? It's going to depend depend on what the research finds. You know, but let's say that the thinking that we have, the hypotheses that we have, you know, are, are borne out in, in, in our findings. So um, whether that be microdosing or full dose or, you know, that, that actually in the, the trials suggest that this is a really helpful, beneficial approach. Um, so if the research says that it is, and we and we have evidence. Then I think the clinicians that are working in this space are like any other, you know, sort of drug that's tested or intervention that's tested. You know, if the evidence is there and we and it's and it's it's available, I think there will be ex- acceptance and a willingness to implement. At the moment, there's a lot of stigma and misconception and misperceptions as well. So, who knows? Over the next five or ten years, we keep talking in the way that we have been. You know. There's a lot of conversation going on about psychedelics at the moment, and we build up that research body, then um, I think the landscape could look really different. And it could just be that this is 
one approach alongside a whole lot of other things that we're already using and that are already helpful for people a lot of the time. These experiences and the substances, they break down boundaries. And one of the boundaries I see being broken down is is the boundary that exists between or the silo uh, of the silos of, of doctors and psychotherapists or psychologists. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a huge chasm that a lot of patients fall into. Yeah, and there isn't is there another drug that we would prescribe in the setting of psychotherapy currently? I guess this brings to mind sort of like a plug for health psychology, actually, because that's really what health psychology is all about. It's about it's about that marriage of psychology and medicine or the med- a medical model and working together more closely. And, you know, many of the graduates of our programs and, you know, health psychologists who are working around the country and um, a lot of people working in Auckland, um, you know, that's what they're doing. They're working alongside their medical colleagues. It's not so much that a you know a drug is being prescribed in it, but it's it's that collaborative approach where it's not that uh, medical doctors are sort of calling up a psychologist to come in and do or something. Or vice versa. Or vice versa, yeah. that's right. Um, but actually working alongside people. Mm, there's a woman in uh, the States, can't think of her name, Lauren something. We're going to try and get her on here. She has a podcast called The Embodied it's helpful, isn't it? The embodied, the embodied mind, the yep. embodied mind. Yeah, uh, she's a psychotherapist. Her brother's a psychotherapist. Um, I think the story goes. Their dad is a seventy-one-year-old psychiatrist, uh, and she and the brother were like, "Oh, you know, you've really got to try this. You've got to yeah. try it." Yeah. And the dad was, "Oh, he's so worried about them." I heard him interviewed as well. Yeah, but he is now a convert and is now her prescribing doctor. So yeah. she does yeah. therapy. He prescribes the ketamine or whatever it is that they use, and. So yeah, it just it just seems like so many of those traditional barriers are getting broken down, mm, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and talking of boundaries, because it's kind of not the space we're in, but a little bit. One of the things that I'm really interested in is you've got this MDMA study coming up. Mm-hmm. MDMA therapy traditionally is six to eight hours long. Yep. Two therapists. Yep. A really different way of working, isn't it? Yeah, it is a different way of working, um, and. Yeah, I, that's going to be interesting. You know, when you think about the landscape and how that might roll out, um, how we might change things, I think that is potentially one of the barriers that that maybe only a, a select few are able to access that kind of model of treatment. That's one of the reasons why I've been interested in developing a different style, which is the idea of using microdosing, because I think that there's potential for microdosing alongside psychological therapy. That that actually is um, something that's a bit more easy to actually roll out, that it's not going to require the same kind of time input uh, with clinicians uh, sitting alongside people for six to eight hours. And It's interesting to listen to those people be interviewed you know, overseas because they will talk about, well, actually there are some people that this work is suited to mm-hmm. and some people who just are not going to be able to focus for six or eight hours. They just don't want to be in that position because it's very non-interventionist as well, isn't it? Yeah. You, so you're talking about the therapist yeah, sitting alongside. Yeah. yeah, non-directive. Non-directive. So so yeah, so just sitting sitting alongside people in the you know, there might be a little bit of input and some talking, but mostly it's actually just being there. Being there, being present, being kind, being compassionate, you know, just, uh, you know, allowing the experience to unfold. Yeah, it's it's certainly less directive than traditional therapies have tended to be. And your unique perspective on the clinical trial that you're you're planning yeah. involves meaning centered therapy, doesn't it? Yes, uh, do it you does. want to talk a little bit about that? This is an approach that 
feels like it fits really well with psychedelic therapy. There's some real, really nice synergies. It um, it comes from uh, originally from the work of Viktor Frankl, uh, and his you know, he's an Austrian psychiatrist who was a survivor of the concentration camps and wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*, and you know, it was a wonderful book. And really, the the idea is that we can cope with anything. We can cope with the most challenging experiences if we are really connected to what's most meaningful for us. And so meaning-centered therapy is all about kind of helping people reconnect with what's most meaningful, where they get their sense of purpose. And that can be all kinds of things, of course. It can be connecting with the land, connecting with nature, connecting with children, family, fun, you know, it might be around, you know, rec- leaving a legacy. There's there's a lot of different ways that people can find meaning. Meaning-centered therapy and psychedelics, which is often about finding meaning as well. I think that there's a really lovely marriage there, <laughs> though that's kind of the trial that I'm interested in, in developing. But uh, different to a full high-dose experience, the idea in this trial is that we would do microdosing alongside meaning-centered therapy because the um, yeah, we don't know a lot about microdosing. There hasn't really been very little research done in the area, and most of it's been self-reported of people who are microdosing in a, in a kind of an underground way. And that also comes back to that question we ask here a lot, isn't it? How important is the mystical experience or the, you know, that big high dose experience? Yeah. How yeah. important is that in the successful outcomes that people are getting overseas? Well, certainly, I mean, the research suggests that that's the mediating thing. That's a really important bit. That's certainly what drew me and and piqued my interest in the area, that idea that there's something about this the psychedelic experience that connects people with something bigger. You know, that that's the idea of spirituality. So connecting with the universe, the cosmos, the uh, connecting with other people, that sense of common humanity that, that I think a high-dose experience, you know, the potential there is, um, seems really exciting. It's anybody's guess how this is going to roll out, and mm. that's the beauty of research. That's the fun bit of research is yeah. that your imagination can run wild, yeah, and and then you can actually see what the reality is as you go and, and, and measure things. But yeah. what I think is likely is that there will be a, a complete diversity and diversification of different modes of psychedelic therapy. So there mm. will be the medical model. Yep. There'll be the traditional psychedelic therapy assisted psych- psychology model. But then there's also the underground model through ceremony, through indigenous practices. Yeah. And let's hope that the two can, can find common ground and common space to to both be present and and do this safely you know that's that's the idea and then on top of that there's there's going to be just so many ways and so many different combinations of not just dosage combine imagine combining microdosing with macrodosing as part of a program combining different psychedelics uh, along the way there's just it's infinite possibility yeah we're certainly just at the it feels like we're just at the start aren't we and there's so much possibility 